0: Welcome to the Pockets of Knowledge podcast, where we share illuminating
1: stories and knowledge to inform, educate, inspire, and empower you in the areas of business, health, finance, philanthropy, art, and entrepreneurship, designed to help you achieve your goals. And now here is your host, Desiree Stanley.
0: Welcome, everyone, to the Pockets of Knowledge podcast. I'm your host, Desiree Stanley, and with me today is my guest, Jan bernstein Chargin. How are you today, Jan? Great. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited that you're on the show with us today. You're going to be sharing some information about a really, really important topic, and that is the topic of homelessness. And it is a very complex and multifaceted uh, subject. And so we're going to be exploring some of those things today. And I'm very excited to hear um, what you have to say. But let's get started with your... How did you you know, get started in this area is it wasn't initially what you were doing, um, you know, say out of college and, and um, starting into your career. So tell us about it.
1: You know, it, it's definitely not something I, I set out to do in college, never would have occurred to me at that point. My career path was definitely not a straight line. And uh, I like to always share with young people that it doesn't have to be. It's, that's okay. You find your place, and all of your experiences add up to who you become. After um, I, I got a job out of college that moved me from New York to California, and I was working in San Jose as a manufacturing supervisor at Frito Lay. After a few years of that, it looked like they would have wanted me to move to another plant, a different location. And I just felt like this isn't me and uh, I'm an artist. So I thought this is my time. I'm gonna stop, take art classes and, and be a struggling artist for a while. So I did that. At one point, uh one point in that journey and you know a lot of things happened, I wound up living uh, out of my stu- out of a studio I rented, which was not a place that was suitable for human habitation. Mm-hmm. In other words, homeless. So, mm-hmm. uh, I was living in a place I was I was lucky I had I had electricity. I had access to a bathroom but I was In a metal Quonset hut that flooded, that power went out, that was dirty. I was kind of outside of I was outside of mainstream life and expectations in any place I expected to be, and learned a lot about uh, how difficult it is, how very difficult it is, and what happens to you once you kind of are out of mainstream functioning. I went through a you know several years period, and uh, I. Made my career change by getting involved with some of the arts organizations first, learning about nonprofits through being a volunteer at an art gallery. I was taking classes. I was Took a part time job as the coordinator of an art gallery at uh, West Valley College. I was the gallery coordinator there. I started doing a little fundraising, got to like coordinating volunteers, became a volunteer coordinator at InVision, which is now called Life Moves. And I started with a part time job there. I was still unhoused myself, but I was working as the volunteer coordinator and the resource coordinator there. And I got to live a lot of kudos to uh, Christine Burroughs, who was the executive director at that time, who, who gave me a chance, despite everything left. Let me be the uh, uh, director of public relations for InVision for a number of years. And that really put me on a whole new career path. Let me know about nonprofits. Uh, I left for InVision. I left uh, and became the director of public information at Gavilan College, where I stayed for 21 years and just retired at the end of December. So uh, in that journey, I never really lost the calling for addressing homelessness and people who were uh, struggling in that situation. About 2010, I got involved with the Gilroy Homeless Task Force. And a year later, a man walked into that task force and asked us if we could start a shelter and he would donate some space. And that was Jim Currier. And then we formed a new nonprofit and the Gilroy Compassion Center was born. Now now the South County Compassion Center, which runs programs in Morgan Hill as well. And uh, And I stayed there as the acting executive director, as a volunteer and board member for eight or nine years that's who's going. And then uh, during the pandemic, we saw a need, me and some other formerly unhoused people, people with lived experience. We saw a need as all of the indoor services closed to get people food and to let them know they weren't forgotten and to um, interact and do outreach as peers and as Mm -hmm. peer mentors, not as service provider to client to not as helper to person being helped, but as just one person to another equal level. So um, we form Pit Stop Outreach, where the majority of people involved have had some lived experience, and we do um, meals. We bring meals out to camps and people on the street and in cars five nights a week. We do continue weekend outreach events. We work with other agencies, and we try to be there as a kind of moral support for people who is... Who are, who are trying to get housing. You know, I'm also on the board of Destination Home and that's the solution, building housing, getting people into affordable housing. But we know it takes a long time. They need support while they're waiting and while we're building.
0: Wow, that's fantastic. So- that's It's great stuff, Jan, Uh, what you're doing. I mean, I had no idea um, that transition that you made from a job Mm -hmm. at Frito-Lay, as you said, and then getting into the art world and and what that kind of that path led you to. And really, it sounds like it changed the entire trajectory of your life. Mm -hmm. And now uh, what you're doing in in helping with these different nonprofit organizations and the uh, number of people that you're helping is just, it's, it's wonderful. That's awesome. I want to talk a little bit about that, you know, peer to peer support Mm -hmm. just for a minute, because I think that brings up such a great point is that um, there's often a disconnect, right? Because Mm -hmm. the people who, who want to help have never experienced what the people who need the help have been through. But when you have a peer, they, they can speak right to, you know, the heart of it. Like Mm -hmm. I've been where you are, I've been through this. And I think that Mm -hmm. makes such a huge difference in, in getting through to, to people, right?
1: Yes. And to let people know, yes, this, this process that we're about to put you through in in housing, it's awful. It's terrible, but you know, we get that and uh, you just got to hang on and and, and keep going. And it's good to, to give back, you know, once you've been there, you don't ever really want to forget, you know, forget people. So, you know, we we definitely had people who are even still currently on house, helping with deliveries or helping out with different aspects. We've done encampment cleanups and try to provide opportunities for people to get involved because you know, somebody once said, you know, we want to play too. And just because, you know, but you don't have as many opportunities to do that sometimes when you're, when you're struggling for your own survival.
0: Yeah. Because as we know, there's, there's, you know, those basic needs that we have. Mm -hmm. And you know, if if those aren't even being met, Mm -hmm. there's very little that we can do above and beyond that, but that you've got Mm -hmm. those individuals who are capable and are willing to do it. That's, that's awesome. And, Mm -hmm. and so it leads me to something we talked about before we started, and that's how there is so many myths yeah. And so many misconceptions. A- and as I said at the beginning, how this is such a complex and really multifaceted um, yeah. conversation because, you know, we could be talking about people are homeless because of um, lack of affordable housing. They could be homeless because of mm-hmm. maybe their mental um, health issues aren't being um, mm-hmm. resolved or they're not being helped in that way. So let's talk about some of those myths and misconceptions a little bit.
1: I think the biggest one is that that people don't want help or that people mm-hmm. like the lifestyle and don't want to, they really just don't want a place to live. You know, they're happy and having fun. And that's, that that's not the case, you know, and we, we do surveys. I'm not saying that one guy isn't out there, right? <laughs> but with, you know, like I think 170,000 people unhoused in California, that's not 170,000 people who are choosing to sleep in tents along freeways, right? That's, That's not fun. That's not something people are enjoying. They want places. They want real places to live. And, um, you know, turning down an emergency shelter bed is not the same thing as not wanting housing because you want housing. You might be afraid to take the shelter bed because you're gonna give up your spot, not be able to have your stuff, you know, and still have to think about this is temporary. Where am I gonna go when I get out? Yeah. So um, the long term, the permanent housing is what's needed. I'm reading a, a, a book now that really did a study. It's it's called Homelessness is a Housing Problem by Greg Colburn and Clayton Page Aldern, and they, you can't really see it in my uh thing here, but yeah, um, there you go. How structural factors explain U.S. patterns, and you know, there's a um, a, a misconception that it's uh, mental illness or drug addiction is causing homelessness. And they take a look at it with data here and take a look all across the country at um, the correlation because mental illness occurs in every state, substance use disorders occur in every state in the country, and homelessness doesn't correlate with them. Okay? Mm-hmm. Homelessness correlates with the cost of housing. Mm-hmm. If you look at the data, okay, the homelessness correlates. Yes, there are addicts. There are people with mental illness. There are people with chronic illnesses. There are people leaving domestic violence situations. There are people leaving foster care. There are people leaving jail all over the country. They're becoming homeless in places where housing is extremely expensive due to the lack of supply. And um, if you think of it as a, a game of musical chairs, right? If there are more people than chairs, Somebody's going to be left out, probably the person who is least able to compete for the available chairs. Right. So anything that makes you less able to compete can put you on the, you're, you're going to be the person left out. The only way to get everybody in a chair is to make sure there are enough chairs and that the chairs match the people, right? If all of the chairs are eight feet high, the person who is four feet high is still not going to have a chair because the chair was not designed for that person. Yeah. So you not only need the chair, the right number of chairs, you need the right chairs and it's a supply issue. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, that that, that's kind of counterintuitive because we think, well, look at all these people and and so many people have problems. Yes. and, And having any kind of personal problems, makes you less able to compete for the available housing, you know, to, to, uh, and people who've owned their homes for a long time, don't understand a lot of things that have changed in the rental market. That's right. When, when I got out of college, you could drive around, look for a now renting sign, knock on the door, meet the person, kind of get them to do this. Then you'd fill out a kind of a pro forma application, give them your deposit and then you go. Now it's a background check. A credit check, right? They have way. They have multiple, multiple applications coming in. You have to be able to prove. You can't just state your income. You have to prove your income. You have to prove that you've had that income for two years. You have to have references. You know, the the barriers to housing have gotten a lot, a lot harder, a lot higher. And uh, you know, for people who've owned their homes for for decades, they don't realize that that market has changed. That the The game is played by very different rules right now. So it's hard to rent. Um, And if you have any of the things, bad credit, anything, renters also ask, well, if people have families, because most people stay homeless in the place they were living, housed. They don't travel to be homeless. Not saying there aren't a few, but the majority, the overwhelming majority. But the reason family members often can't take people in is because the family members are renters. If you're a mm. renter, you can't just take people in, right. right? And you can't take them in if they've if they're not going to clear a background check, if they're not going to clear a credit check. Everybody who stays there has to go through the same vetting. So it's a very very difficult situation. And you know we have also see you know multiple generations of the same family all unhoused mm. together. You know, and uh, these family relationships are there. So you know I'd say that's the biggest myth that people don't want housing and that and that it's that the homelessness is caused by Personal behavior, you know, there is there is a personal component, but that that's what makes you most likely to be the homeless person in a situation where somebody inevitably is going to be homeless because there aren't enough homes to go around. Yeah, um, you know, the good news about this problem is once we really understand it, that's not rocket science, right? We can we can actually create the right supply. We we do everything to uh, get in our, get in our own way and prevent that from happening, but. Mm-hmm but it is a concrete structural problem that can be solved. So I feel hopeful about it, even though it takes time. It's a lot of work. It's going to cost a lot of money and there's no free way out of this, right? Mm-hmm. We're yeah, right. years behind in addressing it. I, I think we've gotten some things, some changes in construction and, and in some of the regulatory world that's happened at the state level, that'll make it easier for California to start addressing uh, the supply shortage. and. Uh, I'd say, you know, people, um, when somebody, when your government proposes some low-income housing near you, don't fight it. That's what's needed, right? That's for <laughs> that's for your, your nursing assistants. That is for the people who serve as classroom aides in your school. That is for the person who made you coffee. That is for the person who is tending the lawn. That is for people who have disabilities. That is for seniors. That is for people who are just like you, but without as much money. So, you know, let's let's have a community that includes all of us.
0: You know what? I want you to say that again, because I don't think you can stress it enough that people yeah. are misunderstanding what low-income housing is. So right. say it again, please. Okay.
1: Low-income housing is for people who you know. Low-income housing is for people you already see every day. It is for the person who checked you out at the grocery store. It is for the person Who cleaned your house? It is for the person who is uh, working in the yard at your kid's school. Low-income housing is for people who are working in retail and service jobs, and in healthcare and in education. and are a part and a very important part of our community. It's for people who we called essential workers two years ago, Mm -hmm. who kept coming to work every day. Um, This is who low income housing is for. And you know what? It's also for some people who can't work. It's for people who are disabled. It is for people who are retired without a pension. It is for the person who worked for 15, for 20 years at a job that didn't provide a pension. It is for the person who uh, has a disability. It is for the person who just uh, aged out of foster care and is at their first job, but doesn't have family support to help them get started. That's what low-income housing is. It's for the family that just left a domestic violence situation and is starting over. That's what low-income housing is, and that's us. That's everybody knows somebody who, who fits into the category. You know, this is with Silicon Valley, and you know, here in South County, we we are measured in terms of income against the entirety of silicon valley but the truth is we still have agriculture Mm -hmm. we have retail we have service jobs a lot of the people who make our south county communities go are considered low income by silicon valley standards and that's small business owners in many cases you know one one low-income housing project went up in gilroy and we realized 40 percent of the workers in gilroy didn't earn enough to live there we needed very low income, we need extremely low income housing, because what's considered low income in Santa Clara County might be considered, you know, upper middle income someplace else. So, yeah, um, you know, and we and if we just keep we can't just keep driving people farther and farther afield, because that, that hollows out our communities.
0: Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much for, You're for welcome. restating that because that is such a misconception. I think that mm-hmm. people have, um, and, and a fear that they have yes. that because there's just, they just don't understand. And uh, so thank you again for restating that because those people, as you said, are mm-hmm. essential workers. We cannot do without them, right? We, really? We cannot do without, Anybody in our community, we are all together in this. We all serve a purpose Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, we've got to be there to support them as they supported us and
1: we've got to support each other. Mm -hmm. Right.
0: Yes. So, yeah.
1: Yep. Communities, communities, all of us. So thank you for the opportunity to say that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, To bring that out.
0: Excellent. Um, and so I want to just switch a little bit and, and bring up something you ran recently for the city council in yes. Gilroy. And so I'd love to hear more about that and mm-hmm. what that experience was like and mm-hmm. what kind of uh, prompted you to do that. What was it that mm-hmm. spurred you?
1: So it was an incredible experience. I, I have to say that I, uh, I am very grateful for having having done it and the people who supported me and the people I got to talk to and meet and who, who who shared with me the things that they hoped to see and needed in their city. I always stay very politically active and aware and I was I decided to run one day uh, at a city council meeting where homelessness and people who were on house were being discussed in a way that I felt was very disrespectful mm-hmm. and not helpful, not going to help us solve the problem. And I thought, you know, I can run and I may not win, but I can hopefully change the tone of this conversation. And I think that we were able to do that to a large extent. But, um, you know, there's, there's more to be done. It was um, d- disappointing. I, I, think, um, I think I learned a lot. I, I, tend, to, I tend to learn by doing. I'm a, <laughs> I'm a try it, let's see what happens kind of person. So I think if I were to try again, I would come in much better armed on, uh, with knowledge about what to do to make it a successful campaign. And I'm um, not gonna eliminate that as, a, as an option going forward.
0: Oh, excellent. That's great to yeah. hear. And I love that you pointed out that you learned so much and now you would know what to do next yes. time. I think that's the, the key to so many things in, in life in general is yes. you, you try, that's that trial and error you, you know, maybe didn't get it that time, but you learned so much more and you can come at it from a different Mm -hmm. angle or whatever. And you've got that knowledge to back you up. And that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's it. somebody uh, told me once, you know, you just dust yourself off, keep walking. (laughs) <laughs> you know, you got, you've got a lot more information now than you had going into it I Had some great yeah. experiences. And, you know, there were people who told me and it really touched my heart they, that they voted for the first time in their lives because I was running and uh, that meant a lot to me and it let me know that it, it was worth doing you know, because there are people who don't have a
0: voice. That's amazing because how important voting is. I mean, we just, I want everybody, absolutely Mm -hmm. everybody. And I talk to my kids about this and I'm like, talk to your friends about this. And my daughter who's not even 18 yet Mm -hmm. is pre-registered to vote. And, you know, she's talking to her friends about it. And uh, really, because there's nothing more important than voting. And, and being involved in that and knowing what is going on, especially at local levels, right? Because you've yes. got more control over what happens in your city, your town, mm-hmm. your community um, yes. at that level. Of course, it matters at the state right. level, you know, and in the country with, you know, mm-hmm. you're voting for the president, of course, that's important too. Yes. But the the local level, you can make such a difference and have such an impact on on everything.
1: Yes. And you can vote for people you know that you have access to and really be a part of running your own community. And that's right. that's that is power at the local level and you know everybody can have a piece of that just by getting involved. Yeah. I like Excellent your kids for doing that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, thank yeah. you for that. Let's talk a little bit about your time um at the Gavilan College, and mm-hmm. as a director there, and so tell us what you were able to do, um, you know, there at that, because that is a local community college for us, yes, um, here in the South County, and um, so tell us
1: about that. You know, I had, I feel like I was one of the luckiest people in the county. I, I got to have an eight-minute commute for. For 21 years, doing important work in a beautiful place with fabulous people. And, uh, you know, it doesn't get any better than that. And community colleges are really the, uh, the unsung heroes of our state. You know, that's the, the largest system of public education uh, in the world is the California Community College System. It gives everybody an opportunity. And Gavilan College is a real gem. The first time I stepped onto that campus and saw how beautiful it was, wow never would have known, never would have known. And, uh, you know, to get to work there and see the, the changes and the the things we got to be a part of, you know, for, for years, we had a TV channel and I got to be, do our reach out to the public through our, our public access channel. And when I started working there, there was no social media, you know, we, we did print ads and carried things back and forth on floppy disks. And by the time I left, it was all social media and, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, to, to see, though, that the you know, education continues, there's a fabulous faculty there. And, um, you know, I went to a, a very large university as a freshman, and I, I envied the students at Gavilan College who, who were in a classroom of only, you know, 20 students right there with their professor, not in a 800-person freshman lecture hall you know, that the instructors cared, you know, the whole time I was there, I never missed a graduation because it's such fabulous, impactful celebrations and it's, and such an impact on the community. Yeah. You know, I, two of my kids uh, went to GECA there on the campus um, as their high school and, and graduated with their associate degrees and then transferred the credits and went to university. And I, you know, I would encourage everybody to, my goodness, take your first two years at the community college or at least take some classes learn how to do college you know there's a great resource here it's a lot less expensive and you can get a, a start on your education and uh, so I, I just feel I, I'm very grateful that I was allowed to do that for 20 years it was it was good and again met, met wonderful people and uh, people who worked there and the students who came through and I got to see so many people come through as students and now I see them out there in the professional world and that's uh, that's neat.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, excellent. And you know, yeah. you, you said that the junior colleges are the unsung heroes, and I absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I went my first actually mm-hmm. three years to De Anza Community College yeah. before transferring to a Cal State. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, now the students who go in straight away have the opportunity to get those first two years for free, right? Yes. So that's even more phenomenal.
1: And then transfer. And then you have a university degree. You go in and you already know how to be a college student, which is a big transition from being a high school student. Absolutely. And uh, and again, you've got your first two years where you actually know your professors, you know? So, you know, I can't say enough about that, but I encourage, I encourage everybody who's thinking about college to not dismiss your local community college and anybody who's thinking about getting retrained, any adults Mm -hmm. thinking, you know what I have. I'm ready to move on in my career. That's the place to go do it.
0: And, yeah, absolutely. That's a great point that you bring up is that change into a different career Um, Mm -hmm. we've been seeing a lot of um, things happening Mm -hmm. with employment right with um, job cutbacks and whatever Mm -hmm. and the community colleges are a great place to go learn new skills that you know can put you in an entirely different field if you choose um, or just give you additional education that puts you in a a position to maybe go after a different job that requires a higher education Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And, and they've added a lot of online learning, you know, on mm-hmm. uh, March 17th, 2020, when everything had to shut down, we, you know, we took the entire curriculum from in-person to 100% online in three days. Uh, what I found out you know, since leaving is a lot of students now like that hybrid approach. They want to take some of their classes yeah. in person and some of them online. And what a great thing to be able to offer people and people who are working. And we've all kind of learned how to do this Zoom thing and to be in um, different places at once. And, you know, I I think we got some, again, we learned, we went through a terrible time there with with the pandemic, but we also learned things, all of us, you know, about how we can use technology to not just have fun, but to relate and to to talk to each other and help each other without being in the same room.
0: Yeah. And learn. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about, um, we're going to kind of switch gears and talk now a little bit more about the nonprofits that you you started. You were co-founder of two nonprofits, is that correct? And and what are they
1: and are they still running? Okay. So the first one was uh, Gilroy Compassion Center which is now South County Compassion Center. And it is still running and doing a fabulous job. That was started again, because I was uh, on this task force. And one day a man named Jim Currier walked in with all these binders and said he had an empty warehouse and this was during the recession the great recession couldn't rent out his big empty warehouse that needed to be renovated a lot of people were out of work I think this is 2010 he said look we'll donate I'll donate this warehouse for five years if you can put a year-round shelter in it because at the time all South County had was the uh, the Gilroy Armory which was only in the cold weather months just mats on the floor everybody had to be out six in the morning it was not what the community needed we formed it kind of a, a, a core group. We, we looked at different ways to do it, but okay, we'll form our own organization to do this. And we formed uh, a new nonprofit and we, uh, the Gilroy Foundation stepped up as our fiscal sponsor for the first six months so we could get our grounding. And we first set out to uh, to renovate a building and create a shelter. And that turned out to be a bigger nightmare than anybody <laughs> That was the the overnight shelter part that was beyond us that building was not going to ever be a shelter, but we were able to make it a day center. We were able to provide the daytime services, a place for people to come where they'd be welcomed. And, you know, at first when it was all volunteer run, it was come on in, here's a coffee pot. We would print out the housing listings from Craigslist, the job listings from Craigslist, you know, for people without computers, post them out, let people use our phone, have a bathroom, donated clothes. You know, it was very simple. It was a a day center uh, for a few years. Then we added uh, something called the camping program. And we started helping people get off the street by going to camp in our county campgrounds. And we had private donors who paid the camping fees. And for several years, it was a team of people that drove people to county campgrounds. And that camping program um, kind of became a model, you know, for different things that happened around the county. And eventually that allowed the, gave us the experience to then partner with the city of Morgan Hill and Morgan Hill Bible Church and create the, the safe parking program which is still operating and still helping families have a transitional spot to get off the street. Then uh, Compassion Center grew and uh, eventually became funded by the county with some paid actual paid staff, some county grants, paid staff, and a a partner to Santa Clara County's Continuum of Care for Homelessness, which means they could help people get into the county database that's used to prioritize people for housing. And that became the gift, I think, uh, what I heard is that just this year since July 150 people from our streets have been just here in in Gilroy have been got have gotten into housing through that system. That's so great. Uh, the Compassion Center is still going strong. We started Pit Stop Outreach, like I said, during the pandemic, uh, me and uh, some other folks had been involved at the Compassion Center, Sam Brown, Melissa Kubangbang, um, Sean Weymouth, who has uh, since passed away, uh, Tony Menino, and a woman named Vanessa Ashford, who has uh, since joined our board. And it is a uh, an all-volunteer grassroots effort. I, I'm very passionate about what we can do on the grassroots, just by stepping up and saying, who wants who wants to do this crazy thing with me and then see who comes along and people come along. I'm very grateful for Martha's Kitchen, which is a large nonprofit kitchen in San Jose, which has supplied all of our food. And for the people who believed in what we were doing right away, uh, Tony Bowles at the Neon Exchange, who I I cold called, had never met her and said, Tony, here's what we wanna do. We need a place to package this donated food so we can take it out to homeless encampments. And she said, okay, and let (laughs) us... (laughs) And for the so she gave us uh, a chance there to start, and uh, we're grateful to the Neon Exchange. Then our second year was spent at the Veterans Hall in Gilroy. Many thanks to Gilroy Veterans Hall and Christine West for making that happen. We then uh, got were hosted by the New Hope Church and the Seventh Day Adventist Church and the other locations that allowed us uh, to come in and package meals a couple of days a week. And then finally, in April, we were able to rent our own space. So this is a growing, it's exciting. It's uh, starting a nonprofit has been definitely easier the second time around. Again, learn on the first one.
0: (laughs) That's right.
1: (laughs) Second time you have a roadmap. So, you know, this one, we're we're very much, um, you know, committed to people with lived experience, people sharing their experience giving people a way to step up and to participate, you know, it's because we know it's, you know, that's, it's good for the soul. It helps you when you're Mm -hmm. in difficult times to be able to contribute and do something for somebody else. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I learned that. And then, you know, Sam Brown, he's the, his, his, his nickname is pit. So he's the pit in pit stop outreach. So we invite other people to do that too. You know, and whether yeah. they do it for once in a while, for a period of months, for years, you know, it's it's wonderful. And then we we've gotten to bring young people in because high schools require community service, and we uh, provide opportunities for service just in coming to our headquarters and packing the meals and learning a little bit about what we do. And, That's awesome. Um, you know, again, I think that the best thing about this kind of work is it it does good, and you meet. Wonderful people, because you meet the people who also want to do that kind of work. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, and I think back to my first job out of college and why it didn't resonate with me. You know, there's nothing wrong with what I was doing; it just didn't give me the the feeling that it mattered. Right, <laughs> that uh, just doing it for me wasn't enough for me. Yeah, you
0: know? it 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 wasn't giving you any kind of. That that give back, like you said, you know, what right. what that does for you? Um, yeah. there was no passion behind what you were doing in that job, but with what you're doing now, it's the the passion that's behind it, the fulfillment yeah. that you get from it. It's 100 yeah. percent you can hear that. Um, in mm-hmm. in talking with you right now for sure. I want to ask though, is there a way that if you know people who are listening, if they could um help in the um with the nonprofit yes. in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, actually volunteering or donating
1: yes. or anything like that, is is there a way that mm-hmm. we could do that? We've got a website, uh, www.pitstopoutreach.org. And you can volunteer. You can find out a little bit more about what we do. We need volunteers who can package meals, who can bring them out. We need donors who can donate clothing. I mean, right now it's everybody's blankets are getting wet. Everybody's blankets are getting soaked and we're going to need more blankets. We're going to need maybe somebody to donate a day in the in the laundromat to just stay there with quarters and help people wash and dry their blankets, because otherwise everything has to be, everything's going to get moldy and have to be replaced. We need people who can um, be there at, at city council meetings when when topics that affect the unhoused come up so that the council knows that it's, uh, the leaders know that it's important and we definitely need uh, donations, if I could say, you know, a monetary donation helps us pay the rent. We don't have staff, but paying the rent, buying forks and emergency supplies for people, that's really important. There've been times we we don't do it a lot, but we've put people in, uh, you know, motel rooms when something, you know, when they've been uh, recovering from a medical condition or when something has happened and uh, used uh, an Uber account to send people to court and to, you know, medical appointments and housing appointments. Sometimes people are aren't able to apply for housing because we can get them assistance sometimes with the deposit and everything, but not the fee for the, the application fee and the background check. And uh, if you're living on the edge, that's a lot of money if you're trying to apply to four or five different places. absolutely that adds up into something you don't have so. Donating that, donating gas cards, people can get to appointments, you know, getting involved. I'm always happy to give people a tour and a talk and invite them to come in and see what we're doing. Um, Fantastic. Every, everybody can be involved. And that's Wonderful. that's what I, you know, I, I'd say that the most important thing is everybody has something to give. <laughs> you know, even sometimes you know, I'll be going out and delivering meals. And the one person who comes out and, you know, if I stop at a location where there are multiple tents, the one person who comes out and says, I'll bring them, I'll bring them out to everybody. You don't have to go, you know,
0: Uh.
1: out there, you know, and people um, participate as much as they can, or, you know, coming up to the clothing thing, grab something for somebody else. And I always thank them for helping others too. Like it's, I can't do it alone. None of us can do this alone, but every person can pick up just a little piece, and that gets it done.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Um, I and there's an expression, and I'm going to probably um, get it completely wrong, mm-hmm. but it's about um, you know heavy lifting and mm-hmm. many hands. You know, with a difficult yes. task, and you know whatever. Right. I I can't put it all together right now in my head. It's not. It's not coming out. But you know, it's just the idea of you know mm-hmm. a difficult task with many mm-hmm. hands is easily done. You know, That's something right. like right. Many
1: hands. I think it's many hands make work light. And there, there yes. you go. Yeah. <laughs> and and everybody. And and there's there's a there's a small piece. If you break it down enough, you break down the biggest problem. There's a small piece of it that you can do. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. you know, and I love matching people with those with those pieces. Excellent.
0: Well, to wrap up our, our talk, yeah. uh, you had shown us a book earlier, and I would love to hear um, any recommendations that you have of books that you think would be beneficial for people to uh, pick up, check out at the mm-hmm. library and share those with us.
1: Okay. So that first one I talk about is Homelessness is a Housing Problem by Greg Colburn and Clayton Page Aldern uh, about how structural factors explain U.S. housing problems. Another one I'm reading now is called Decolonizing Wealth. Mm. Indigenous wisdom to heal divides and restore balance. And it's by Edgar uh, Villanueva. And he's, he, he's somebody who is active in philanthropy and started then to take a look at the whole philanthropy field and see how, even with the best intentions, you might be perpetuating a system of oppression. Right. How do we reimagine it to give voices to people? You know, one of, one of the things, I'm on the board of Destination Home, and one of the things we have is uh, the Lived Experience Advisory Board, mm-hmm. which is composed of people who have lived experience uh, being unhoused, of, of using the services that, that we fund. right. And whose voices are increasingly needed, listened to, powerful.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. You know, how do we, how do people who want to help make sure that the people we're trying to help are the first people we ask, what do you need?
0: Yes. Instead
1: of assuming that they don't know what they need, right? They know what they need. Right. Uh, You know, how do we bring those voices in and how do we, uh, how do we help with people instead of at them?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Great point. So
1: I'm really getting a lot out of that. I I, uh, I uh, highly recommend both of these.
0: Fantastic. Uh, Excellent recommendations. Asking. Yes. Thank you All for right. sharing those. And this um, has been um, such a wonderful conversation, Jan. I thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing with us your experience and your knowledge and the information has just been um, tremendous. So thank mm-hmm. you so much for being on the show.
1: Thank you for the opportunity. You're very welcome. Um, wonderful. Well, we'll talk okay. soon. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us this week on the Pockets of Knowledge podcast. Be sure to join us again next week for more great information designed to educate, inspire, and empower you to achieve your goals. And thanks again for listening.